Um, so I, I think we also spoke earlier about the risk of legacy business and we've got Yageshri Moodley. She's from Liberty Life. She's an actually there and Liberty Life's also been around for a number of years. So I'm sure there's uh, quite a few legacy issues to deal with there. So yeah, um, please welcome Yageshri and we're interested to hear what you've got to say. Thanks. Thank you, Neil. Thanks. Hi, everyone. Uh, thank you for making the time to be at this slot. I'm going to apologize in advance because your tea might be 10 minutes late. Um, I do have a lot to get through, but I'm going to need your help to understand how to pitch it. So if I could ask, maybe, could you please stand if you work in financial services? Oh, a lot of you. Okay. Stay standing if you work in life insurance companies. Okay, that's quite, quite a good proportion. And stay standing if you've had some exposure to legacy business or closed products. That's really helpful. Okay, because I just need to understand um, where to pitch this. And it's good to know that you have some background and that you've discussed this earlier. Unfortunately, I wasn't here earlier, so I hope I'm not repeating anything. Just tell me to move along if I am, okay? Um, <laughs> but really, what I'd like you to leave with is a new understanding, a deeper understanding of how legacy risk affects a customer's experience through your business and what that might mean for your strategy. Now, it's not gonna be a strategic risk for every company. But life insurance companies are particularly vulnerable, right? I'd like to see risk professionals become more proactive and innovative about managing these risks. And it's maybe a kind of a contradiction to think about creativity in respect to past blocks of business, but yeah. Actually, did you deliberately plan to put the cyber risk and the legacy risk right next to each other? Uh, <laughs> Oh, okay, because it's like risks of the future and risks of the past. That's really clever, actually. And, and in the end, you'd like to see, really, your customers leaving with the best value for money experience over the whole, uh, over the whole contract term, right? So there's a TCF angle to it. So I've got really four components that I'd like to go through. Firstly, we'd like to identify the problem try to understand how this arises and where it might materialize as a risk. And then we can look at some of the actions available to us to address that risk. So if you note, that spells the acronym CIRA. And at the top of every, every slide, there'll be a, a little CIRA thing, so you can, you can track how we're going through. And um, maybe now time for the disclaimer. So this content has been put together from my own experience, but also in collaboration with other actuaries that are working on this topic. And there's a lot of work being done on closed products and managing legacy risk. However, the interpretation of this is really my own, and it might not reflect the views of my collaborators or employees or the actuarial society. I will be presenting from the life insurance context, which I'm glad to see most of you are familiar with. But I would also like to keep it sort of general enough that you can start to think about how it might apply to other areas of your business. And I'd like to leave you with some tools to avoid creating this problem if you don't already have it. 
So a brief overview of the context, and there's nothing new here. You're probably quite familiar with this, so I'll go quickly. We know that we're in the age of the customer, and there's so many drives supporting that. Regulation has come out very strongly in support of that. There's TCF, RDR, Twin Peaks, and that's likely to continue. There's also emerging research about how a customer experience contributes to shareholder value. Technology is disrupting business models. I mean, Natalie just gave us some very scary stats. And it literally is changing what is possible. I mean, this, this is changing what is possible and introducing new risks into your business. So what does that mean for legacy risk? And something that maybe we don't deliberately think about is that we've got now a new generation coming into the workforce. And they're prepared to keep moving until they find work that is challenging and somehow a contribution. So it's, it's fine if employees want to keep moving, but it does present risks to how do you develop, retain, and use organizational intelligence? And how do you attract and retain those scarce skills that might actually be critical to your business? And these trends are likely to continue in the future. So for those of you who haven't been exposed to legacy business, I've got a little story. Legacy is like having a steam train in a world where a hyperloop is possible. You love your passengers and you want to get them from A to B. You want them to be safe and comfortable, right? But the coal engine <laughs> is just not working anymore. The engineers have left. The boiler mechanics are, well, okay, some boiler mechanics really enjoy their job, but the new ones are just not happy shoveling coal, okay? And the ticket collectors, love the client interaction, but some of them are starting to ask, why isn't this thing biometric, right? And you've got ticket sellers that may have helped you sell tickets to on your steam train, but now they also want to sell tickets to the Hyperloop uh, to your steam train customers, uh, so that might cause a little bit of um, challenges, right? The train owner really appreciates the steady stream of income from his steam train, but he actually wants to develop his own hy Hyperloop. So now, the revenues from the steam train are paying for the Hyperloop R&D. The train owner knows he's got challenges in the steam train, but that's not where his, he doesn't want his attention to be there. He wants to look forward, right? The city council has been complaining about falling safety standards and about the environmental impact, and they've introduced regu regulation around that. And meanwhile, the coal engine is making noises, funny noises, and um, no, one's, no one quite knows how to fix it. Senior management is trying. They've hired experts to help. But it's difficult to fix the problem if you've never seen the inside of this coal engine and you've never met an angry passenger. So things, yeah, it's, it's, not, it's a challenging situation. And also last night, somebody hacked through the fence and stole the cables. So can I just check everyone understands the analogy there, right? So, <laughs> so who are the passengers? The customers, right? Good, thank you. And the owner, the steam train owner? Shareholders, yes. What about the engineers? Management, okay, yeah, maybe. Sorry, I can't hear again. Yes, it's the people, well done. <laughs> it's, the, 
it's the people who built the thing, the people who put it in place, the product development actuaries, the people who put the systems together and the business processes around it. So who are the boiler mechanics and the ticket collectors then? Admin, your call center agents maybe, the IT run team, the people that keep it moving today. They may not have built it, but they're the ones that have got to keep it moving. This is making sense. Cool. <laughs> so now to formalize it a little bit more. I want you to think of three things. Product, platform, and process. It might be that over time, expectations around how those things deliver value have changed. And now you have a situation where one or more people, not necessarily all of them, right, but at least one, believes or perceives that it could be better that there could be room for improvement. So it's delivering less value than it could be relative to current expectations, even though those expectations might actually have been set long time ago. And it might be at risk of further deteriorating in value without a defined exit strategy. So I'd just like to unpack this, because I know it's a bit loaded. <laughs> so I said believes, because it's not necessarily true. Many legacy products do deliver excellent value to shareholders and to customers, but there's a perception that it might not do. Like if you focus on the termination penalty, you might say that's, that's not fair, but what about the excellent bonuses or the investment guarantees that you receive, which you could never buy in the market today? So it's a perception, right? But people act on the perception and they will terminate if you don't explain the value proposition clearly. It doesn't have to be all your stakeholders. In the, in the termination example again, it might be that you have one party who feels somehow ripped off, but another party doesn't see it that way. Um, a really good example of this is there's a contract at the moment, this is real, where a Frenchman has got a, an insurance contract with Aviva and he gets a guaranteed investment return because it's based on last week's prices, he can trade at last week's price any time during the following week. And he's made guaranteed investment returns of up to 70% a year for the last seven years. So he's very happy. He's getting great value. Shareholder's not so happy because it's unhedgeable. And then that's, that also links to the exit strategy. In most contracts, and we'll talk about this a, a bit later, there's an exit strategy, right? And even in some very long-term contracts, like in mining, for example, when you commission a mine, you put forward a decommission strategy at the same time. So you actually build in an exit strategy. But what happens if you see that things are not going quite as planned? You haven't built in enough um, prudence or margin to, to, to deal with that, but now you don't, you don't really know what to do next. That's the challenge, right? So traditionally in the life insurance context, legacy business is associated with closed products. And that might include, for example, universal business that was sold in the 1980s and 1990s, which combined risk and savings products into, uh, risk and saving elements into one product. And those books still offer very uh, good value and there's lots of value in that business to shareholders. But I want to extend that definition now to consider where it might impact a product that has some sort of legacy built into the platform or the process. 
So it's not just about the product. It's about how the product is experienced and delivered to the customer. It's about now the operations of it. Do you see the distinction? Okay, so it's a, it's a little bit broader than closed product management, which is in itself a whole other topic. And it is also a subset of techniques that focus on optimizing the value of your in-force business. And there's lots of work being done in the UK and in the US on how you really enhance the VIF and extract the value out of that. So I'm going to focus more on the enhancing side. I know there's very clever things you can do on extracting, like securitization and stripping margins, but I'm going to focus more on how do you enhance the value propositions for, for your shareholders, your customers, intermediaries, and employees, and some of the actions you might take around that. So just, again, sort of looking at why this might happen. As we said, the environment changes. So socioeconomic stuff, technology, stuff changes. And that causes a change in expectations. But what if your contract is not able to keep pace with that change? Okay. And in the life insurance context, it's, it gets even maybe a little bit more challenging because it's an intermediated market. So the insurer is held directly accountable for delivering an experience that it might not have been so close to actually creating the expectation around. So there's a, there's a broken telephone risk there, potentially. Also, you know, there's a perception that newer is better. And this is, I mean, I mean for example, when the iPhone 6 comes out or came out, how many of you signed up for it, like, almost immediately? No iPhone fans. Okay, never mind. <laughs> Forget about that. The point is, <laughs> the point is people like new stuff. And old products or legacy business might be seen as easy targets just because people prefer this newer is better thing. There's potentially a risk when you grow by acquisition, but you haven't fully integrated the business or standardized the processes and the platforms around that. Complexity is not in itself a bad thing, but when you have scarce skills and you haven't been able to manage the knowledge around your business appropriately, then it becomes a challenge. Now, insurance companies are unique in that the nature of the products have not really lent themselves so far to standardize software and platforms. That is emerging now, but compared to other industries, it's, you know, there's still a large degree of proprietary IT in insurance companies. And where there hasn't been consistent investment into that, or where there's now a very uh, serious issue around lack of skills necessary to code these old systems, then it becomes a real challenge. How do you maintain this non-standard IT stack? You've got a platform and uh, hundreds of associated apps that no one quite understands how to maintain. And if you want to build for the future, it's, it's really costly and challenging to build on that system. Now, I know banks have experimented with two-speed platforms, where you have a legacy system in the back and a more user-friendly front end. And it's worked fairly well. But so far, that hasn't really come through in insurance yet. And then, possibly unintentionally, management focus might actually contribute to an accretion of legacy business. I mean, we know that selling new business is important, and there's a lot of focus on new product launches. But where that detracts attention and resources from maintaining existing customer value propositions, you might give rise to legacy risk. 
the contractual part of it is very interesting because life insurance is the life insurance contract is is quite interesting in in a vari variety of ways so i just compare it here to a bank account a simple transactional bank account and a conventional with profit whole of life product if you look at the consumption period okay, i use my bank account on a daily basis and i'm aware of it but i know that when i buy my long-term life insurance contract it's you know it's like a I know that I'm going to use it up over a number of years, the rest of my life. And that's fine, except, where, except that the contract has been fixed. Okay? So I don't know if banks actually have fixed terms, but I know that they review their fees once a year. So let's say that the fees are sort of the boundary, the contract boundary there. So you've got a one-year term, and beyond that, you can kind of manage the risk. You've kind of got a little exit point there, in a sense. But your insurance contract doesn't. It's a whole-of-life fixed term. Uh, so fixed both in terms of the time and in terms of the terms and, and, the terms and conditions. <laughs> and then the interesting one is that who can vary the contract? Mostly, in most contracts, either party can renegotiate or, with notice, exit. But in a life insurance contract, only the client can do that unilaterally. The life insurance company is not allowed to just say, I'm sorry, I can't provide this anymore at good value, so I'm canceling your contract. And if you want to vary the contract, you need to contact the, con uh, the policyholder, and, or either directly or through an intermediary, help them understand the changes, and agree to them. Even if you know that it might be in the client's best interest, you still might struggle to demonstrate a legal right to change a contract. And that is particularly challenging when you might not be able to contact your client. And then the termination cost also presents a barrier for various reasons, which I'm sure you understand. So what does this mean for risk management? A lot of the risk has already been captured as when you think of the risk to sources of profits or surplus. And, you know, for example, um, if there's mortality risk, you might understand that there's, obviously, th it won't turn out exactly as you expect, but you've built in a margin for that. You might not have fully priced it, but it's, there's something there. There's also potential to hold discretionary reserves or margins as you feel necessary. Particularly, you might hold around data and regulatory risks, like TCF reserves, for example. But the rest is often kind of grouped into operational risk. And I'm not sure we fully understand what that fits in, what actually goes in there. So if your platform fails, do you really understand the operational ro losses that might arise? And is it adequately reflected in that formula? Now this is where the role of the actuary and the risk management professional becomes very significant. Because here you really have to understand the end-to-end -end value chain and where you create value and where it's at risk of actually being lost or it might deteriorate. And when you think about value, you're not just thinking about the product again. You're thinking about the end-to-end -end customer experience. So now, depending on the nature of your business, this might actually be a strategic risk because there might be an opportunity cost involved. Now, this is not true for all companies because it really does depend on the nature of your business, where you've, what you've sold so far, where you are relative to where you think you could be. So two things to think about are like the significance of the business, 
both in terms of financial value and in terms of strategic significance. So it might be that it's low value now, but you plan to use that to expand into Africa, for example. So there's a strategic value to that. And then think about the gap relative to expectations of one or more stakeholders. So in the current environment, with the current technology, what might you expect of that customer's experience? And what are you actually delivering? So depending on the, the significance and depending on um, how big the gaps are, you might have a significant strategic risk there in terms of opportunity cost. Because if you, if you don't consciously develop this and maintain this proposition, this might lead to terminations, um, ombudsman complaints around the high termination charges, reputational risk, damages your reputations with intermediaries, which then impacts new business sales, and it becomes a cycle that you can't actually pull out. Where did it start? And how did legacy risk contribute to this outcome? What else could you be building if you weren't managing this? And it contributes in subtle ways to many of the challenges that insurers face. Obviously, there's TCF concerns. And some have accused us um, as the insurance industry of not maintaining or disclosing um, information, and that has led to a lack of trust. It might contribute to the lack of agility or innovation or the perceived lack of innovation in the insurance industry because insurers find are generally slower to adopt new technology and fully exploit the, the benefits of that. And it obviously has cost implications and inflation implications. Is everyone with me so far? Are you awake? Okay, <laughs> good. So some of the actions you might take. Sorry, let me see. Okay, uh, can, I, can I stop and check if there's any questions at this point? Because we're going now into the actions section and I kind of want to make sure we've identified and understood the problem so far. There will be time for questions at the end, but if you have, if there's something you strongly disagree with or you need to question before we move on, then please do. Okay, so everyone's loving it so far, great. <laughs> so some of the actions you might take, this is a loaded one, okay? You could consider enforcing or varying the terms of the contract where you have a right to do so. Now, actuaries would be familiar with things like premium reviews, or varying smooth bonus mechanisms where you've got the leeway in the contract to do that. So legally it's okay, but that in itself is a risk. I mean, you know, doing a premium review comes with its own risk. And, um, okay, I won't mention specific company examples, but it has not always been well received. Even where the contract specifically has a one-year reviewable term, it's still challenging explaining why the premium increases every year, even though you try to set that expectation at the start of the contract. One that I really do strongly advise is that you try to engage your clients and intermediaries more proactively around cross-selling or upselling, upgrading, right? The same way you would upgrade a cell phone subscription. Why not upgrade to a better version of your existing proposition or maybe something different that is more appropriate to your needs at this stage. Now, if you have an active financial advisor, you would hope that this is already being done. 
And there might be barriers to doing this though. So you could maybe look at sort of easing those barriers. For example, what some companies do is provide a special basis for clients or advisors that are looking to terminate their contracts. And if you provide that special basis, they then consider it not terminating, but changing into a different product. And that's often a really great solution for both the customer, the intermediary, potentially, depending on the uh, commission, and, and the shareholder and the employees. Something that's been done um, to various extents is segmenting the legacy business. And this has been done um, quite a lot in the UK. You could do a full segmentation where you literally completely cut off the legacy business and make it its own company. It's got its own management structures and it's run separately. And the benefits of that is you really do then have management focus on this business, which might have unique risks and require unique um, interventions. You could also partially segment the business, and this some South African companies have done, where you've got a team dedicated to managing the proposition on your closed products. And I'm not sure to what extent they would also look at the operations, but that, should, that could be a part of it as well. And then limited segmentation might be where you include specific KPIs, for example, in the contracts of your employees, so that it's just top of mind that it's not just about selling new business, it's also about serving your existing customers. One that quite, uh, works quite well to accelerate the runoff of the business is to freeze allowable changes on the contract and redirect it into new products. So for example, where there are premium increases, on a legacy product, you could engage the customer to say, okay, you're actually not allowed to increase your premium or benefits on this product anymore, but we have this newer product. So funnel your premium increase in here and you'll get better cover at better cost or whatever. This is more challenging, but if you look at the customer value propositions that you offer to your target markets, there might be a few, just a few, maybe 10. 10 unique customer value propositions, right? But how many products do you actually administer in your business? How many products do you have on the system? How many portfolios do you have on a single investment proposition? So if you could understand what is the uniqueness of this client value proposition and how are you delivering it? And try to merge the system products to reflect a closer link to a unique client value proposition. So you're not changing what the client got. You might make it better, but the fundamental benefit that they bought is still the same. You're just consolidating your operations around it so that you can deliver the same proposition through a, in a more efficient way. And then specifically for systems, platforms, and processes, you could look at migrating the business so here you wouldn't change a product, you would literally move it from one administration system to another. And in doing that, you might significantly simplify all the processing and the servicing around that because the newer system, the newer platform is more capable of supporting that. There are other actions that you could take. If it's really bad and you really don't wanna do the stuff, you could sell it. But I'm assuming that you wanna keep the customer. You want to keep the customer, you want to keep your passenger, but get rid of the coal engine. 
right? Because that customer relationship is hugely valuable. Legacy is not all bad. There's, if you think about what is actually the VIF, the value of Inforce business, it's not just the value of Inforce contracts. It's actually the value of your existing customer relationship and all the contracts that you could sell to them and their network. So you don't want to lose that customer because he's going to spend three times as much trying to replace him. So what can you do to keep him happy or her? Is this, is this still okay? Cool. So now what's best for your business? We've got several alternatives here and they're not going to be, it's not a one size fits all thing. It really depends on where you are, what products you've sold, what your platforms look like, what your processing looks like. And so you really need to think as a risk professional, what are the characteristics or the criteria that you want to use to evaluate between these options? And you might sort of tabulate it in this way, uh, just an example. Some criteria you might use to assess the desirability of an option would be, for example, the extent to which you can re-engage a customer around understanding their needs at the current point and, and managing their expectations going forward. Um, whether or not it requires prior consent, you know, as I said, you can't just unilaterally change the contract. And if you can't contact the customer, that might be a significant hurdle to actually doing anything. How does it help you simplify and scale your business? In a world where operational efficiency is becoming increasingly important, I mean, especially on investment business, you've got to ask, can your business actually handle this level of expense and complexity? And how can you find ways to standardize and scale it so that you can deliver an exceptional experience at, at an affordable cost within what the uh, premium paying policyholder is willing to pay for it? So it's value for money. Does it help you actually accelerate the runoff of the business or channel it into newer type products? And then of course, this has to be a commercial decision. You can't just spend one billion rand rationalizing a system. It's got to have a business case. And as actuaries here, you can ha add tremendous value in trying to understand and quantify not just the risks as they currently stand, but the risks going forward. What's the opportunity cost? And that's not an easy question. You, you understand, right? I'm, I'm going light on the technical details, but because I want you to leave with the principles and the, the ideas. But you can see that this is not easy. Just please don't interpret the, this as, you know, it's not technically challenging because it is. <laughs> So I'd like to take you quickly through a rationalization case study. And again, focusing primarily on the principles and what I see as the critical factors for this to succeed. So again, we've got our three Ps. And we're trying to fully integrate and standardize the operations of these two types of businesses. You've got your platform, so we, sorry, your products. So we're looking at the product proposition and the investment proposition, so portfolios as well, and understanding how can you group those so that you maintain or enhance the customer value proposition. Then your platform. That means all the operational systems, the associated applications around that. It's an entire stack of how do you deliver the tools that you use to deliver the experience. And then the process the end-to-end -end process of actually servicing that value proposition. You'll notice there's one P left out. Can you guess what it is? People. 
And operational risk is exactly that, right? Systems, processes, people. So there's a very important component here, which is people, and I'm going to touch on that later. So this is not necessarily going to move you onto the Hyperloop, and you might never get there. You might never want to get there. But what you're trying to do is just make your customers that much more comfortable, right? And it's a step in that direction. It might not be a big step, but if you're looking to move to a more strategic solution, you, you can take little steps, right? Go lean startup. So if you think of your current situation, you might have two similar investment propositions and a, a risk proposition. If you combined the investment proposition into a single investment product on a newer platform, that's a step in the right direction. Do you see? And you might just then take a further decision later on to maybe split your investment in risk. It doesn't really matter that you, don't, that you do it in several steps. The point is that you're moving in the right direction and that the next step is always easier. So in pool or snooker, they say it doesn't matter if you sink the ball. It's not about sinking the ball. It's actually about positioning yourself to sink the next one, right? So some of the principles that I, I think are really necessary, I can't imagine that you can do it without these principles. It has to be fair to the customer. So at the very minimum, you have to preserve what they had before. And this is, this is with the intention of doing it without customer consent. Because the only way you can do that, the only way you would be ever allowed to do that, is if you can prove that every customer is better off, or at least no policyholder is worse off than they would have been if you hadn't done this. And that helps you bypass a critical uh, challenge there, which is that you might not be able to contact your customers. So in this way, you can, you can do what you know is best for them without having to go through the hassle of contacting and getting them to sign new contracts. Of course, you have to preserve shareholder value. So you can't just sink a massive hole in the balance sheet and break the EV. Okay, so again, it needs to be a balance between these different and sometimes conflicting stakeholder needs. Ultimately, you want a simpler end-to-end -end value chain, and that is really challenging because you need to think sometimes beyond your own insurance company. You need to think now to the intermediaries. Everything that affects from the time the customer buys in to the time that they actually get the benefit and all the things that happen in between. So the investment management, all of the um, servicing, the processing, maybe their existing products with other companies could even contribute to that. So what does it take to succeed? McKinsey have done a really, really interesting study on this, and they've come out with five factors that they believe are critical to, um, to getting this right. And I actually found it really interesting because it's not just Obviously, it's not just us that have this problem. There's this huge um, focus on this in the U.S. as well, and that's where most of this uh, study came from, from experiences with U.S. companies. So you have to understand the available technology and be able to interpret what that means for your business and your context, especially where there, there's a lack of standardized solutions. You need to understand the alternatives and the cost implications and also how is that going to work going forward? Because IT investments are big, and you really need to understand how is it going to pay itself back. You know, you can't just sink 50, 60 million at a time without a solid understanding of the risk there. The transformation angle is quite interesting. 
Because legacy business is not just about the business. It's a, a way of doing things. So you might often get this comment that, well, it works now. It's not broken, so why should you fix it? And it's really about having the conversation. How do you transform that mindset to become more about value, about delivering the best value that you can, even though you don't have to, but maybe you should. And there you really need transformational leadership. And we'll come to that as well. It influences transparency and your um, relationships through like from board level through to senior management. Okay. And very important is the team. And this is where actuaries actually have a really unique contribution. And McKinsey's article actually says that the lack of an actuary or a data analyst is a significant risk to such a project. Because actuaries understand this stuff. We understand risk and value, and we can me measure and manage the trade-offs. So consider how you can contribute to something like this. OK, so now if you don't have it, how do you make sure you don't get it, right? Communication, communication, communication. Not just with your customers or your shareholders, but also with regulators. The people that are, are saying that this detracts from value, well, if you believe otherwise, then share why do you believe that. They might not be able to see it. So don't wait for it to become a complaint and a reputational risk. But think more consciously about how can you actually communicate proactively around this. Product design. You're not just designing a product. You're designing an experience. And that experience has to satisfy the customer for the next whatever, how many, however many years you're designing that for. So consciously design the customer experience. How is that product going to be serviced five years from now, 20 years from now? Price in the cost and the risk of including a unique product feature. And that's, I mean, that's standard product design logic, right? But it isn't always applied. So think about how is this feature actually going to operate? How is it going to be delivered? and make sure you can afford it and that the customer is willing to pay for it. You could consider making the contract more flexible to give you more sort of review or exit points. But as I said there, that comes with its own risks that you need to be aware of. But as far as possible, make an attempt to keep it simple and modular. Because if it's modular, it's more flexible. It's like puzzle pieces. They're easier to move around little pieces than trying to move like a brick. So try to keep it such that you can Maybe tweak this part without having to, you know, like re-engineer the whole thing. If you're, cons if you're growing, which obviously all of us want to do, all the companies are planning massive growth strategies. When you do that, please consider the operations and try to integrate them as much as possible. Going into Africa comes with a unique set of challenges. You know things are done differently and you might not always be able to fully integrate the operations. Premiums are collected differently in Nigeria the way they collected here. And it might not be appropriate to standardize that aspect of the business. But what can you integrate? What can you standardize? And look at where the risk arises if you don't. How can you increase management bandwidth to look at this issue more proactively? So we've discussed the idea of segmenting it and having a dedicated management team to look at this. But you might also consider incentivizing a more customer-centric approach. And this is, I know this is not easy to do because you need to have reliable metrics. You need to have metrics that people can interrogate and trust if that's what you're going to base their salaries on. But we can help there. We know how to use data. We understand the relationships between things. 
And what if you could quantify in some way customer satisfaction? There is work being done on this and it's been done a lot in other industries, but it's emerging in life insurance companies. But what if we could do that? Don't leave it too long because the longer you leave it, the worse it's gonna get. So really look at your operations and try to identify the points where you can do it better. And again, it must be on commercial terms. So takeaways. Depending on where you are, this might be a strategic risk in terms of the risk to customer experience, the compounded complexity if you don't deal with it, and the opportunity costs. It requires more deliberate and proactive management. So yes, the best practice is still emerging, but there is risk in not doing anything. It's not enough to just hold more capital or strengthen controls because you're just layering the complexity. You're not fixing the problem. You need to understand the whole value chain and identify how you, can, how you can improve it. And again, prevention is better than cure. If you get this right, it is the most fundamental risk management you could do for your business. If you can show where value is created and where it's at risk of being destroyed because of the changing environment, and we, we've, I mean, you've heard a lot about how emerging risk affects the, um, the business. What if you could what if you could manage that more proactively? And this is a step towards that. Sustainability is a huge talking point and, and it's something that, that really is, I, I can't see it you know, going away. It's here to stay. So what if we looked at risk from different perspectives? So we traditionally look at risk from our shareholders' perspectives, but what if you looked at the risk from a customer's perspective? Is it possible and how would you do it? Would you take different decisions because of that? Engage external parties because they may not fully understand the impact of retrospective regulation or rulings or compliance requirements. So, so share it, share your perspective. And there is a possibility to get a win-win here. It's not that you're trying to benefit one stakeholder to the disadvantage of another. There are ways to make sure that, ev well not everyone, but more than one person wins without disadvantaging, disadvantaging everyone else. So if you can find that, that's really, that's great. And then ag again, I said, what would you do if you weren't saddled with legacy, legacy risk? It really, I mean, risk management is such an imaginative field. You can get to imagine all the things that could go wrong. And it's really the freedom to explore what, what would you, how would your forward-looking risk management change if you weren't so worried about managing the risk that you've accrued over the past. So I'd like to thank everyone that's contributed to these views and they're all there. I, I know that there might be some detail that um, needs to be fleshed out. So if you have any questions that, or if you'd require more information, please let me know, you can email me and I'm happy to take questions now if we have time. Thanks very much, and Simon. Um, I'm just very curious on the value you mentioned that so many times in the games when um, in your experience have you seen any net gain by sale on the basis because of my experience is that it's just costs. And best, the best outcome is you can travel to the it's because of the cost of travel. So I don't know if you've seen any of those. 
So in the rationalization case study that we discussed, again, it was, uh, it's a company-specific um, you know, point, but it was actually costing so much to run that system and the, com the contagion of it. So it wasn't just affecting that book of business, but it was pulling resources away from how you could service other customers. And if we took out that system, we were actually able to build a business case to show that it was not just EV neutral, but it actually provided a small profit to shareholders. At the same time, we actually improved the customer value proposition. And just because there was a tension on that business, we picked up a few areas where there might be potential TCF concerns, and we were able to proactively improve those customer outcomes. Before, before it became a complaint, I don't know if it ever would have become one, but it was more principle around you know, what, what do you feel is right here. And it really speaks very strongly to TCF outcome five. But what you say is actually, I mean, it's really challenging to do that. But it's also the most rewarding part. Because if you can balance it, I mean, that's really been the most rewarding part for me. Thanks. Okay, so just to clarify, not all of this is about liberty, okay? <laughs> so it really was, I, I made an effort and I actually got contributions uh, from all these people. So it's not just a reflection on liberty, okay? Um, but for your question, I mean, it's really up to the people who, who are um, looked to to protect the customer. And the statutory actuary, I know it won't always be a statutory actuary, but the actuary has a very important role to play there. There's also governance structures within a company, and you might have like a client fairness committee. If there is enough support at board level, you can trust that that will be enacted, that customer fairness will be a principle that flows throughout the organization. But you really do need it to come from the top, but you, and you also at the same time, it comes back to that team idea. You need the right blend of skills people that understand the business, like how the servicing actually works, how the system works, people that understand the product, and people that understand the financial impacts of it. And there might be even more, I don't know, that's just three I came up with. And they're not the same person. So you need to bring all those perspectives together, get them talking, and then understand from there what is the best outcome for everyone, the best that you can do. Okay, great. Thank you very much. <laughs> So if everybody can be back here at uh, 10 past uh, 3 for the final session. Thanks.